Be seated. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would ask that you open it to the little book of Nahum as we continue our study through the 12 minor prophets. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find the book of Nahum in that Bible on page 734. As you flip there, I would like to ask if there's, you can think through if there's anyone in the past that you would like to have walked in their shoes. You'd say, that it would be neat to have the experiences that that person experienced. I want to tell you before we even start thinking about that, that Jesus is right out. You can't do that, so we'll clear the ground there. But who else might you want to walk in the shoes of? I, I, would, I look up at the moon and I'm like, I can't believe that people actually walked there. And I can't believe that Neil Armstrong knew he was going to do that and still messed up the quote. He, he could have gotten it right, and I would have loved to have been there to say, no, Neil, that's not what you're supposed to say. On another more profound level, being one of the disciples must have been one of the coolest things ever, right? Like, it's not just that you got to see Jesus do miracles, but to hear him talk, to see the, the, the way people flocked to him, the, the movement, to know that the, this was the Messiah, the long-awaited one coming from God, would have been fantastic. While not looking backwards, but looking forwards, I think that I can say with a great deal of confidence that if there is any one person, that Jonah, the one who was swallowed by the fish, would have wanted to be, it was the prophet Nahum. What Jonah wanted to do was to go to Nineveh and to tell Nineveh, you're all going to die and to allow it to be true. And Jonah goes and he knows that as soon as he opens his mouth to speak of their sin and to speak of the coming judgment, that God will indeed see that, see their repentance, see the sackcloth, see the ashes, and because he is a forgiving God, because he is merciful, he will relent. Jonah knows this. Even so, he waits for that destruction to come. What Jonah wants, Nahum gives. Nineveh turned back to God at one point in time. But since they have forgotten that path, they have gone back to their foolish ways. They have proven their foolishness because they have turned from God back to wickedness. Mr. T, who many in this room are too young to know of, and that is sad for them, famously said that he pitied the fool. I once had a t-shirt that was bright orange and it had like raised hair where Mr. T had hair and it, it was bright orange and it said I pitied the fool and it was the greatest t-shirt I've ever owned. I don't know what happened to it. I think my wife burned it. Um, <laughs> he claims, honestly, he said in an interview that he got the, the idea of, of saying I pity the fool. It's like a catchphrase from reading scripture. He said in Scripture, he found all these fools and he found great pity from God. And so he said, hey, these things probably ought to go together. If you, if you are on Twitter, follow Mr. T. You know what it is? It's just a litany of Scripture verses. That's all he does is post Scripture. It's fantastic. It's the best use of Twitter that you could possibly find. Mr. T often said he pitied the fool. And clearly, God does have pity on fool. More pity than Mr. T does. But we find that God's pity, while wondrous, while deep, does, at a time, come to an end. And there will be an end to it. And Assyria, and their capital Nineveh, has come to that end. There is no pity for these foolish people. And Nahum seeks to make that clear. 
The book itself is much like the book of Obadiah. It is a one-off oracle against a foreign nation. And yet it's odd because that oracle wasn't actually written for that foreign nation. This is unlikely to have ever gone to the Assyrians, yet it was written for the people of Judah to hear the work of the Lord. There are indications in the book as to what time this was likely written, probably sometime between 650 and 625 B.C. It is a grand literary achievement. Outside of the fact that it is Scripture, it contains some of the most lofty and wondrous and even haunting language in all of Scripture. The oracle that God gave to Nahum was one of pure and unmixed wrath, given to a wicked nation. Let us turn to that great book and work our way through the text, and we'll begin in chapter 1, although we are going to do something a little out of the ordinary today. Nahum is set up sort of chiastically so that the first chapter and the third chapter play off of one another and the second chapter gets kind of sandwiched in between them as we're going to talk about that. So while we will go through the first chapter first, we're going to do this odd thing. We're going to skip over the second chapter and then talk about the third and then come back to the second. You'll forgive me if I'm playing editor with scripture, but that's just how we're going to handle it today. Um, Let us read then the first chapter of the book of Nahum. If you would read with me in your copy of scripture. Nahum, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an ever-flowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given the commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The first chapter of Nineveh, we find that fools do not know God. Fools do not know God. It's said in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They do not fear the Lord. And Nahum seems to imply very strongly they don't fear the Lord because they don't know the Lord. To be truly wise in the world, to understand and experience contentment, to experience goodness, is to know the Lord our God. The Ninevites simply don't do this, so Nahum is going to helpfully introduce them to him. Nahum 1, 2 through 8 is a compendium of images and statements about the very nature of our God. He starts by saying God is jealous. Jealousy is a horrible human trait because we are unworthy of our own self-reflection so much so that we are consumed by ourselves. But God, as the highest being, ought to be jealous for himself. What else could he possibly desire more than his own glory and his own good for his people? For him to be jealous is good. But that jealous that jealousy also means that he is wrathful. He will pour out wrath upon his enemies, those who seek to deny what is good, what is true, what is right, what is pure, will receive justice from him. And yet in the same sense, Nahum then turns around and says he is slow to anger. God is patient. He doesn't let his, his anger or his wrath get the best of him. And so he says that he is also powerful, powerfully in control of his emotions. God is not like us, where, where we we get so overwhelmed with our emotions that we lose control and ability to think rightly and rationally and justly, but God never does. He is always in control because he's powerful. But that also means that he is powerful in his wrath when it is released. God is also then just. Because he is in control of himself, he always gives what is right. He never unjustly punishes. He never clears the guilty. He is always just in what he does. The reference to his control over nature certainly implies that he is the creator, the one who has authority over all things. Whether it is sea or land, God is in ultimate control over everything, and his creation is so below him that it cannot even stand him coming down to it. It melts before him. Nahum also insists that God is good. He is good to his people. Those who take refuge in him, he is good. And God is kind. He's merciful. And he's tender with his people. Those who seek to fight against him, he will be a terror to. He will destroy and utterly wipe out. But for those who come near to him, he is kind and good. Nahum then takes these characteristics, these things of God's nature and starts to apply them to the situation at hand, looking at the Assyrian wickedness and God's treatment of them for what God's treatment of them means for Judah. If you pay attention to the back and forth here, it really is something. Verses 9 through 11, Nahum asks, what do you plot against the Lord? Go back to Jonah and God asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? The basic idea behind that particular question is, is what is all this getting for you, Jonah? Why are you so angry? Is this, is this accomplishing anything for you? The same question is being said here to Assyria. What do you plot against the Lord? What, what is the goal of fighting against the Lord? Do you think that it's going to succeed? The whole point of verses 9 through 11 is God looking at them and saying, you're, you're not going to get away with it. I know the wickedness that you plot. 
I know the evil schemes that, that you've brought up. I know the evil that you plan for the nations around you. I know the way you, you butcher and hate people. It will come to nothing. He will make a complete end. We would like to put, he will make a complete end of it, of the plot that you have against the Lord. Trouble will not rise up a second time. This is apparently not baseball. There's no three strikes, you're out. There's one strike, you're out. You don't get a second chance here at the trouble that you are devising. I will put a complete end to it, says the Lord. Like dry wood you are, ready to be burned. In verse 12 and 13 then, he turns to his people and he says just about the precisely same thing, only in the opposite, where he looks at Nineveh and he says, you won't get away with it. He turns to his people and he says, they won't get away with it. Yes, I use them as my instrument against you to discipline you one time, but now that's over. They have more schemes. They've got more plans in place to do evil and wickedness. They won't get away with it. They may look for all the world like they will be able to overtake you. They may look like they are at full strength in many. They may look like they will cut you down in an instant like they've done before, like they will cause you pain, misery, and harm and ruin again, but they won't. In verse 14, he then turns back to Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated. You will be like your gods. You will be toppled, you will be cut down, and you will be lost forever in the heap of history. Verse 15, he again turns back to his people. But you will not be. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. In the text of Nahum, what is that good news? That good news is nothing but the very person of God. It is, it is the presence of God. What is good news? Good news is that God is jealous. He's wrathful. He's patient. He's powerful. God is kind and good to his people. He's refuge for them, and he will cut off all enemies from them. This is exactly what he says. Keep your feasts, so Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is what good news is. This is what the good news in the New Testament is as well. It is God revealing himself to you. It is God proving that he is good and kind to all who take refuge in him, that he will be a terror and bring to an end all who stand against him. He will by no means clear the guilty, and he will punish all sin. God reveals that he will do this and be good to people who come near to him by coming in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He takes sin on, our sin, so that we might be freed from him, so that we might take refuge in him not being penalized for our sin anymore. He reveals who he is to us, a God who is fierce in anger and devoted loving kindness to his people, those who take refuge in him. The Assyrians simply do not know God. They don't understand who he is. The Assyrians are fools, and they must be, because they do not know God. But that leads to the second point and to the third chapter. And that is because fools do not know themselves. It turns out that those who do not know God ultimately can never truly understand who they are. This is why knowing who God is is so important. When you talk, when you, when you speak out loud, you hear yourself in your head. You, you hear echoes of yourself as well, but you have a perception of your voice and what it sounds like. And then you hear a recording of yourself, 
and you realize that your perception of your own voice is wrong. And it's never wrong in a good way. No one hears themselves recorded and is like, hey, man, that's like James Earl Jones. Listen to the sweet, rich, you know, dulcet tones of my voice. I'm different than the rest of you, but that's just because I speak all the time. You have a perception of your voice in your head. That perception is warped because it's of you. That is not the the objective reality out in the world. Other people do not experience you the way you experience yourself. And most people, frankly, don't like that objective experience. The same is true, and all the more so, not just with your voice, but with who you are. You think you know who you are. You have a perception of yourself. But when you get rid of God, when you put him aside, when you deny the image of God in you, you have nothing above you. And when you put that image aside and you think that you have nothing above you, that means you think in no small way that you are in the place of God. And no matter how much you might deny it, no matter how much you might say, you might praise, you might worship God, the only thing you are truly worshiping is the mental picture, the perception you have of God in you, which is formed more by you than by anything else. Not knowing God leads directly in not knowing who you truly are. We we can and have spoken of the difficulty of looking outside and figuring out who God is. Snow falls, leaves fall, the seasons change, sun rises, we've got stars in the sky, we've got moon, we've got tidals, tidal waves and, and just the tides moving, we've got mountains, we've got valleys. We can, we can look at all of creation and we can begin to kind of think about what it is that creation tells us about God and we can get much from it. But it can't tell us the things we truly need to know. It doesn't truly tell us of his perfect faithfulness, of his justice, of his anger, of his love. We need revelation. We need God to tell us who he is. But that means as well that we cannot truly know who we are without knowing who God is. And we need that same revelation to know ourselves rightly. This is exactly, by the way, how Calvin starts out his institutes. That famous, beautiful, systematic writing that Calvin has there He begins by saying, I'm not sure if I should start talking about God or people. Because all of it's so intertwined. To truly know who you are in reality is to know who God is. And to truly know who God is is to know who you are. It is to see what we should be and what we are not. To see pure and undefiled holiness in God and kindness, righteousness, and goodness. And to see us in relief from that. So it's no surprise as we turn to chapter 3, we find out that the Assyrians, having rejected God, do not know who they are. If you would, read in that third chapter with me. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declare the Lord of hosts, 
and will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? Her rampart to sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the city. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like the clouds of locusts sitting on fences on a cold day. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. Upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Fools do not know themselves. They have rejected God and therefore they cannot possibly understand who they are. When we begin chapter 3, it's hard to know if what we're reading has happened to Nineveh or if it's what Nineveh has done to others. And I think this is all part of what Nahum wants us to be confused about. For Nineveh herself doesn't know. She thinks that she is a victor. She thinks that she will romp shot over all of her enemies. But we find in verse 4 that this is likely not so. All of this is payment for her whorings. She has lured others in. She has made promises to other nations. She has enticed them. She has lured them in. And she destroyed them. So she, in turn, will be destroyed. And verse 5 confirms this. The Lord is against her. We get the sneaking suspicion that all that we have read about is not the victories that she has claimed, not the evil that she has done, but the evil that will come upon her. She sounds not very much different than the woman of Proverbs 7. At the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward, her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. 
I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a, a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a, beer, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. This is precisely what Assyria has done to the nations. With her power and her might, she lured people and nations to her. She enticed them. She deceived them. And she brought them pain and misery and death. They have paid dearly, dearly for being deceived by her. Many look at verse 5, and they balk at the kind of language that is used there. It is certainly stark imagery. We have a couple things to say about the lifting of the skirt up over your head. First, it is quite clearly metaphorical. The country doesn't actually wear a skirt, and it's clearly talking about the country or a city, so it's metaphorical. And second, the purpose is to show the nations who she really is. This, this is the whole idea of exposing the nakedness of someone. To be naked is to be uncovered. With the out, this sort of outside shield that we wear, and the fake smiles and the lies that we use to cover up the truth, to be naked is to be exposed, to be shown who you truly are. Nineveh has long and wrongly thought of themselves as victors, as conquerors, as clever, as powerful. And it's high tide for them to find out who they really are. They are not worthy of respect or dignity. They think that all the nations have come to them because they are great and mighty, but the Lord God will show them that they are anything but. They are only worthy of having filth thrown at them. The nations will stand aghast at them. None of her lovers will be sorry at her disgrace. Nahum mentions the city of Thebes, strong geographical protection, a great many allies who likewise were strong. And yet, even in her power, Assyria destroyed her. In 664, Ashurbanipal, the Assyrian king, marched his army down to the mighty Thebes, laid waste to it and destroyed it. God's question to them is, are you better than them? And it's such a brilliant question because certainly any Assyrian would look at that question and say, well, yes, of course we're better than them. We destroyed them. That's what you're, you're talking about. We, we destroyed them. We exiled them. We, we laid waste to them. Of course we're better than them. But in the, the idea of of this sort of rhetorical question in God's word, we know that the answer is inevitably, no, you're not. They don't know who they are. They think in their haughty pride that they are mighty and powerful and they are weak and close to an end. He talks about this protection that they have in their forts. Your fortresses are like fig trees. A little push, a little shove. The ripe figs and all the fruit will simply fall out of them into the mouth of the eater. Assyria thinks they are strong. God will show them that they are weak. In 13 through 15, their military strength is put on front page. Behold, your troops are women. 
The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. It says, get yourself as much power as you can. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your force. Do all you can. Your military is going to be toppled. You're weak. In verses 15 to 16, it turns his attention to economy. All those merchants, more than the stars of heaven, you had a bustling economy. I will destroy it. It will come to nothing. It's like locusts that leave in the morning. Speaking of locusts, he then turns to the leadership. They thought that they had strong leadership. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes are your marshals, like the cloud of locusts sitting on fences in the cold of a day. The sun rises, and they fly away. No one knows where they are. Where is your leadership now? Where are all the leaders that you thought were so strong and wise? What about the nobles? Those with bloodlines who are better than all the others. Oh, they are asleep. They're worthless. All these things you thought you were, you weren't. You had a picture in your mind of who you were, but it was false the whole time. Friends, do you know who you are? Do you, do you honestly know who you are? And listen, you can be as introspective as you want to be. You can navel gaze and you can meditate and you can philosophize all you want. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. I, I agree a little bit with Plato. He says the unexamined life is not worth living. It's, it's good. I think being introspective is a fantastic thing to do. Certainly, it's better than not being introspective. Certainly, thinking about who you are is better than never considering who you are. But to simply consider yourself outside of God, considering yourself as you are, separated from the one who has made you, will never lead you to right knowledge of who you are. To know who you are is to look at what God says you are. Do you truly want to be humbled? Think of who God is. Perfect in glory, perfect in kindness, perfect in mercy. God is good in all ways. He is holy and righteous in ways that we cannot fathom. What do you look like now? You who are an image of God, who are supposed to be the one who demonstrates the very nature of God to all those around you. What's your patience like? How is your holiness? How good are you at long-suffering? How well do you love those who hate you and despise you? How good are you at control? How mighty are you? Friends, you need to listen to who God is and find out who you are. People who do not know the Lord always, always think better of themselves than they ought. God doesn't mean for you to think that you're a worm the rest of your life. He desires for you to know who he is and therefore to know who you are in him, a child bought by the precious blood of Christ. You have worth, but outside of him, you have death. Know who you are. The Assyrians did not know God, and therefore they did not know themselves, but there is one thing that they were sure to know, and that was destruction. Fools will know destruction. And for our third point, we go back to our second chapter. This is where people who do not know God and therefore do not know themselves get to find out both of those things. They find out who God truly is, and they find out who they truly are. Let us read the second chapter. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. 
For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh's like a pool whose waters have run away. Halt! Halt! They cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or wealth of all precious things. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey, his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. The very fate that fell from Assyria upon others is going to be returned to them. God calls for them to be ready. One of the things you get from this passage, among others and many implications, is that God doesn't want to be seen here getting the best of Nineveh and the Assyrians out of some sort of like clever trick. He doesn't want them to have any sort of excuse. Hey, we, we weren't ready. Yeah, you know, we were going through a hard economic time. The guys needed to go home and get a little R&R. And you kind of caught us unexpectedly. We, if we, we would have been ready, if we could have marshaled our forces, we, we would have won. We would have been able to fight off anything you brought against us. If we were full strength, no one could have touched us. So God says, hey, you got time. Build it up, man. You get, marshal all your forces. Get everything you can together. I will still destroy you. The image that is provided for us in Nahum is one of terror and dread. The warriors have red shields, probably not by paint, probably blood splattered on them, showing that these are not novice warriors, that they have come through many battles, and they carry the stains on their shields to show the enemy's blood. They even wear red. Even just the plain soldiers wear red. Probably not in blood, probably because they have won wars and plundered people and gained spoils from them and, and so wealthy and rich are they that they can dye their own clothes and wear red clothes. The chariots not only indicate that this sort of war machine was coming upon the Ninevites, but that it's well-funded and it is powerful. It's zealous for blood and death. The speed at which they move through the streets show that they have very little to no resistance. The people of the city are doomed. The officers are so ready to advance in the city that they stumble upon one another, but even that stumbling in their zealous path to the, to the walls doesn't keep them from claiming what they want. 
The mistress of the city is stripped and carried away by the invaders, and the only thing that is left is mourning and moaning and the sounds of death. You ever seen an above-ground pool pop? It's exactly what Nineveh is going to look like. All the people just rushing out of it. People yelling, halt, and stop, come back, fortify, make ranks. No, terror and dread upon everyone. Verse 10 says it all. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish in every loin. There is nothing left. Everyone has died or they have been psychologically destroyed by this warfare. They are only left wailing in the fetal position, praying for death and death that will certainly find them in time. Eventually, this, this terror gives way to mocking. Nahum mentions that Nineveh and the Assyrians had killed so much, they had always gone out and found their prey and brought it back to their people. They had always gone out and killed enough to bring it back. And God stands in that city and says, where is this wonderful lion's den with all of the food that you had stored up, all of the wealth that you had gotten, where is it? I've laid a waste to it. It is no longer there anymore. There's a sense in which we are left with what is really an impossible task this morning. What we read about here is just so far away from our experience, the gap, it's, it's a chasm between our experience and the experience that Nahum is laying down before us. It's been 160 years since we have had a major war on our nation's soil. And while we have every right to celebrate Veterans Day this past week, remembering that many, many who even belong among our numbers fought for good and noble reasons, they've seen the horrible nature of war and the horrible realities of war. They've watched as their brothers in arms died and they feared for their own lives. And I, I don't mean to diminish that in any way, shape, or form. But what Nahum presents to us here is unlikely to have been experienced by any of them. They might have feared for their friends' lives and they might have feared for their own lives. The Ninevites will fear for their children's lives. They will fear for their wives' lives. For this, all of this for us is something of an intellectual exercise. We are trying to imagine what it's like. We've got movies and books that relate to us the horrors of war because the vast majority of us don't ever, thank God, have to experience that. Judah would have known. Judah would have known what it was to have their women ravished to have their children executed, to see the enemy coming, not to be killed from afar, but to see the enemy coming, watch the menace in his eyes, to see the sword plunged. We don't understand these things. This was written for Nineveh, against Nineveh, but it was written for Judah. It is a reminder to them of God's good favor. That those who stand in opposition to God's will will one day find their destruction at his hand. And let us be clear, all of these horrible events, every single one of them, while done by foreign nations, are by the hand of God. Next week, by God's good grace, we get to contemplate how God, who is always good and shows the utmost kindness to his people, who is compassionate and forgiving, can nevertheless use such ruthlessness for his own end. 
But for today, it's the bare fact that such is the case. Friends, God's people will one day see peace, but they will see peace because their enemies will be no more. And their enemies will have turned on them their own bloodshed. The evil that they have perpetuated will come back upon them. And it is a warning that to be an enemy of God is a foolish thing. They would have seen the terror in these verses. They would have known and experienced it. It wouldn't have led them to think, I wonder what that's like. It would have led them to shudder in horror. And Nahum would say, you cling to God. And so, there is a way to avoid this fate. Going back to the first chapter, I would have to say that verses 7 and 8, if you were to take and you were to summarize in two verses the entirety of the Bible, 7 and 8 are basically as good of a summary as you're going to find. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. God has indeed done this. He has taken on flesh. He has come near to us that he might take on our sin and pay our penalty. And in doing so, show us mercy, give us grace. Allow us to draw near to him, that he might show us his strength and power, not in destruction, but his strength and his power in comfort and in peace for our good and our salvation, that he might be a refuge for us. Friends, if if you seek security, if you seek peace in your own strength, if you want to find refuge in your own prowess and goodness, you are a fool. You're a fool who does not know God. You are a fool who does not know himself. And you are a fool who will one day taste destruction unlike you can believe or contemplate. But if you seek the Lord, seek to know him and thereby to know yourself, to behold the work of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ, and to trust in him, there is grace for you even today. Today as we speak of foolishness, we will go to the book of Proverbs and finish by reading Proverbs 1, 22 through 33. How long, simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called you and you refuse to listen. Have stretched out my hand, and no one was healed. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster.
Let us pray. Mighty God, we hear of your great power and might both to bring terror and to bring peace, to bring comfort to your people. Call your people to yourself. Give those who are wise in you peace. Bring terror upon their enemies, those who refuse to repent, those who seek their own glory, those who would deny you, those who resist your kindness and grace. But let all those who call upon your name know and understand your power for their salvation this day, even unto eternity. Grant peace and comfort upon us, our God, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would, stand and sing our song of response, The Lion of Judah. <laughs>